Hey, welcome. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Check the Mark. I am Mark Lucero. I'm coming to you from California, heading out to Paris in a couple days. I also doing double duty right now. I got my co-host, Isabella, who is with me. How? I want to do a wrap-up of Madrid and sort of how I saw it this weekend. This was the first time in maybe a week or two that I was able to really dig in and watch some tennis sort of from front to back. I spent a lot of time in front of the television <laughs> this weekend. There was so much good sports on, but watched a lot of Madrid. want to big, say a big shout-out to a friend of the pod, Jessica Pegula. She reached her first Masters 1000 final. Shout-out to her and her coach, David Witt. They, the two of them have done an unbelievable job over the last, I want to say, 24 months, maybe 24 even to 36 months since they've been working together just titled in their first tournament together, which was DC. I think that was maybe 2019. And since then, they've really done a great job continuing to improve. That's one of the things, especially as a player who sort of was at it for quite a while. She's really made sort of this reinvention of herself later on in her career than most players normally do. They spent a lot of time during the COVID break working on things, adding to her game, adding the slice, adding the drop shot that was on display in her last couple matches in Madrid, getting the serve better, making that serve a weapon so that she could start points on her own terms and complement the aggressive ground strokes that she has. You know, Jess hits the ball big. There was a funny tweet from SAP this weekend, actually, about how she would neutralize the Jabour drop shot in the final. And the graphic read, she needs to hit the ball hard and deep, which I I retweeted that with a, with a comment. And uh, she actually replied after the match, which is pretty funny. That's that's all I do. And uh, yeah, it was so obvious. So big shout out to SAP for the cutting edge insights into the match. I want to put my coach hat on and I want to talk a little bit about the men's champion, Carlos Alcaraz, and what I see when I watch him. And he is just incredible to watch. And it's easy to sort of fall in love with the power or the things that he does so well like that. The winners, the drop shots, these things really stand out to kind of the average viewer. But as a coach, when I watch it, that stuff is made possible by just incredible footwork and the footwork does two things one is the footwork allows him to defend when players attack him he can get behind the ball in the corners and he can send it back to with interest and get back from defense into a neutral situation and then when the points are neutral he just look out again what that footwork enables him to do is to get to the outer thirds of the court and play more shots than his opponent when he's balanced and loaded tennis really comes down to who can play the most shots set up because everyone's going to be pretty good, but my goal is to try to make you play shots where you're uncomfortable, where you're off balance. What what Alcaraz does is he takes it to another level and was able to load for a split second and then just unleash these huge ground strokes from further out towards the sidelines than we're used to seeing. That combination of speed and balance, that enables him to hit winners from all over the court. And it really reminds me of watching a young Juan Martin Del Potro now, they're not exactly the same body type, but what Del Potro was able to do, he gave up a lot of ground from the baseline, and that kind of enabled him, that bought him some time, and that enabled him to sort of lope from position to position and then unload in that forehand. But Alcaraz does it even closer to the baseline, and he can kind of cuts off angles, creates leverage, especially if guys try to play heavy through the sideline. He's able to cut those balls off, load up on the outside leg, and then just hammer balls cross, hammer balls down the line. That stood out particularly to me. And people kind of think about this idea of Spanish tennis, particularly 
even before Rafa, but even with him, they think Spanish tennis is about counterpunching. It's about you know hitting balls high and spinny, and, and that's not what these guys do. Working for the USTA, I had the ability to spend a lot of time with Jose Higueras, who's, who's kind of the dean of clay court tennis. He, he was coaching Michael Chang when he won in 1989 as a 17-year-old. He coached Jim Courier as well when he broke through to win his first career Grand Slam title, also at Roland Garros. He is someone who understands the clay. He, he had his best results as a pro player on clay, but he understands the clay and he understands how the game has evolved and how the game played on clay has evolved. And I was able to, like I said, spend a lot of time with him at Carson in Palm Springs and listen to the nuance, listen to sort of his thoughts on how different players can apply different game styles to the clay in order to be the most effective. One of the things... I mentioned Del Potro a second ago. One of the things that I got to do, which was really cool, is watch that U.S. Open final with Del Potro, where he won his first U.S. Open. I watched that match with Jose in Carson. And understanding what he saw and really how it all came down to the ability to get set up and to maximize that number of shots that you can play where you're bounce and load for a split second. And that enables you to literally hit the ball wherever you want. Does need to be the quote high percentage choice. My question to Jose at the time, myself and a couple other coaches were, you know, Del Potro was hammering these forehands down the line from relatively far back. And we were asking him how that was a percentage play. And he was explaining that because he has that ability to get balance and load and set up and create leverage and, and drive those balls from, you know, above net height, he'd have to worry about getting the ball up and down. And the percentage shot once he was loaded enabled him to play anywhere he wanted, enabled him to play over the high part of the net and hammer the ball, enabled him to go big cross court. And that's the way that sort of the game has evolved. Like I said, so many people have this misconception that clay court tennis, that Spanish tennis is about looping balls, about fluffing balls, it's about giving up court. Again, that's not the way it's played. You watch Alcaraz play. He plays relatively tight to the baseline. He gives up a little bit of court when he needs to defend. But he, like I said, with that footwork is so quick to take court so quick to take position, similar to a Djokovic. I think Rafa does it really well, especially on clay. Moving up those one or two steps, that double step forward, taking ground, taking a couple feet away from the opponent, and taking advantage of balls opponents leave short in the court. You're just watching a number of those points with Nadal, a number of those points with Djokovic. If the players weren't able to put him away, he could reset the point, play with depth for his forehand, was just jumping off the court, so much weight to that ball kind of helped by that little bit of altitude in Madrid, but so much weight on that ball pushed his opponents back. They weren't able to get behind the ball, especially this was really evident in the Nadal match. Nadal was not able to get behind the Alcaraz ball in the corners. Rafa leaves one short. That might not be obvious to the casual viewer, but Alcaraz takes one or two steps forward, hammers it again with depth, and Nadal leaves another ball short. And then people saw the Alcaraz winner that, it would appear in the highlight show, but that's not really where the point was won. The point was won two or three balls before that where Alcaraz was able to get some depth, use, the, use that footwork, turn the point on his head after being behind in the point. That, to me, is what's most impressive about that young guy. So after you listen to this episode and you're watching Rome or you're watching the warm tournament that follows, Strasbourg, Geneva, Lyon, whatever, or Paris... 
watch the footwork of the players. You don't need to watch the shots, but watch the footwork of the players. Watch them as they move towards the sidelines and see who looks like they're not rushed, who looks like they're able to get that outside leg set, who's able to get that outside leg behind the path of the ball, behind the direction. If you're going to continue to to draw a line in the direction that that ball is traveling, who's able to establish that outside leg and has a split second of balance and loading, that's the player that's probably going to hit the better shot. This year, I think, will be the fourth year of Roland Garros using the Wilson Roland Garros ball. I think at the third or the fourth year. Must be the fourth year because I believe the first year I remember talking with Guy Forche about it. So I think this is the year number four. Um, we've been using it a little bit the last couple of weeks. It's just so tough to tell when you use a tournament ball in completely different atmospheric conditions, completely different climate. Right now, these balls to us have been very spongy. I don't remember them playing that way in Paris. We'll have to see. I remember initially being really excited about Roland Garros switching to a Wilson ball. I thought it would something. I thought it would favor the American players at least a little bit. I thought it would just feel kind of familiar. And generally over there, I think it has. But like I said, playing here in California right now, where the conditions, like I said, are different from how it will be in Paris, it's almost. Uh, to be honest, it's almost a waste of time playing with a tournament ball. Like the only good thing about it is that your arm is used to it, but otherwise the way that the ball reacts to the strings, the way the ball travels through the air, that is just a little bit different. So take that, like I said, for what it's worth. We'll give you a, a better, more accurate update of how these balls are playing when I get to Paris. I am also going to be keeping my eye on the NCAA tennis championships. Right now the teams are down to... I believe the final 16, they're at the super regional stage of the tournament. Some of you guys might know I was in Rome, Georgia to call the ACC semis and finals for the men. I saw the University of Virginia come out of Rome as the ACC champion. Again, uh, that team looks just tough, top to bottom. I was really impressed, however, with the UNC Tar Heels losing four of their six starters from last year and making their way back to the finals. Man, that's a tough team. You don't want to see them on the other side of the net, that's for sure. You also don't want to see UVA. I think it's going to be a great tournament. Also look out for the University of Southern California. They are always tough come tournament time. Last thing, I want to go over a couple random weird things that have been going on. One, a couple weird things meaning at tournaments. One, at Indian Wells this year, we were practicing. I think we were warming up for a match. Steve was warming up for his match, I think, with Hubie Hercats. We were out there on the court playing with a hitting partner, the three of us. For some reason, the security guard had left, and this dude wanders onto the court. He crosses whatever court that was. That must have been maybe court seven or court eight, whichever court is nearest to the path, the walkway for the players. Wanders over to our bench and just kind of stands there. So I go over and ask him if I can help him. He said, no. He's like, but do you guys need a fourth? There were three of us on the court, the hitting partner, myself, and Steve. I said, do we need a fourth? He's like, yeah, do you want a fourth? Play doubles? (laughs) And I said, no, we're not going to play doubles right now. And I, he's like, oh, okay. And then he just stood there and kept watching. And I said, hey, man, can you beat it? He said, excuse me? I said, yeah, it's close practice, man. Hit the road. You got to leave. And so he ended up leaving. And I, again, looked for security guard. There was no security guard. So I walked up to the practice desk after practice. And I told them what happened. And they made a couple calls. And I'm guessing that won't be happening again. Fun thing that's never happened to me before. The other weird thing was in Florida, maybe a couple weeks ago, this was a challenger, and as challengers go, things aren't quite run as smoothly as the main tour. Sure enough, dude in the locker room walking his Rottweiler. Never seen that before either. 
<laughs> but that's what happens when you're down in the jungle. So anyway, uh, that's it for now. I'm going to sign off for me and my co-host, Isabella. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you want to hear from Paris, and we're going to try to pump an episode out uh, next week. So thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Check the Mark. Catch you later.